Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for another day given to us by you to rest from our normal activities and to receive from you. We pray now that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe and minds to understand and hands and feet that are eager and willing to do your will. We pray that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We pray that you would sanctify us through your word. We pray that your word would accomplish everything that you set out for it to do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please be seated. And turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Jonah. We'll be mostly looking at Jonah chapter 2, but we want to start with Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Today, as I mentioned, is uh, Reformation Day, where we rehearse and rehear and remember once again those five solas of the Reformation, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, and for the glory of God alone. And this passage in particular that we're looking at today, the book of Jonah uh, overall, but this passage in particular really manifests that, and that God is rescuing Jonah through the means of a fish. It's not something that Jonah deserved, it's not something he earned, it's not something he cooperated with, it was a gift of God to rescue him. It's a great image of our salvation. We want to recognize throughout that Jesus does not merely make salvation possible. Jesus didn't come just to make salvation possible, but Jesus saves, and he saves to the uttermost. And everyone for whom Jesus Christ came to die and live will be saved. They will be with him for eternity. It's the promise of Scripture that all of his sheep will come, all of his sheep will hear his voice, all of his sheep will be with him, all of his people. Over and over throughout Scripture, and in this passage in particular, we hear that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his to give, and he's going to give it to his people, and they are going to receive it, and they are going to be with them, and not one will be lost. It's a great promise that we have as we move forward throughout our life with all the things that try to assail us and all the storms that try to derail us in one way or another. That great promise that salvation belongs to the Lord and salvation to his people, God will give. And so I'd like to look at two things this morning, the Lord's rescue and the prophet's prayer of gratitude. The Lord's rescue and the prophet's prayer of gratitude. And we hear now, if you remember last time, Jonah had been fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He had been fleeing from the word of the Lord. The Lord had called him to uh, go to Nineveh, and he went the exact opposite way. And you remember the story, it just got this frenetic pace of Jonah going down into Joppa, going down into the ship, going down into the belly of the ship, and then down into the sea, down, 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 down. This great image, and it was just going at a frenetic pace, telling this story of Jonah fleeing from the Lord. And then the sailors had asked, you know, what do we, what do, we do? And, Jonah, and then they decided to cast lots to find out on whose account this trouble had come upon them, and... The lot went to Jonah, and Jonah knew it was him, and he said, cast me into the sea, and your troubles will go away. And they didn't want to do that at first. They didn't listen to him, and then things got worse, and then eventually they threw Jonah into the sea, and things calmed down for the sailors. But now a whole new situation arises for Jonah, doesn't it, as he's thrown into the sea. And so let's hear now the word of the Lord, starting in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. 
And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. So far, the reading of God's holy word. So the first thing that we want to do is look at the Lord's rescue. But before that, it might be helpful to set the table a little bit about the context or a little bit about the background about what's going on in here. This is a really interesting story. And Dr. Brian Estelle, in his commentary on Jonah, he said that one cannot even gain an approximate understanding of a culture without some kind of comprehension of its legal system. And here what's going on is what we call a juridical ordeal, a judicial ordeal. And that is a legal practice of cultures of the ancient Near East in which the individual at law takes a physical test and wins or loses his legal case on the basis of his physical test. And so it's kind of interesting to think about. In other words, like at the time that, uh, near the time when Jonah was written as well, there was an ancient practice in Assyria, where if you had accused me of sorcery, then the accused, I would get thrown into the river, and if I drown, then the accuser would get all of mine and Michelle's stuff. If I lived, then I would get all of their stuff. In other words, the physical test settled the judicial matter. It was an ordeal. It was a water ordeal, even. You're thrown into the water. And a judicial case, a legal case, is settled by a physical test. And we may consider this kind of strange, but it happens uh, several other times in Scripture as well. You can think of Joseph being able to interpret dreams and others not being able to interpret dreams. The one who couldn't pass the test were killed. The one who did live, uh, Joseph, was able to interpret the dreams and he lived. You can think of Daniel in the lion's den, you know. He was put in a physical situation. He had a trial by, tri- trial by lion <laughs> um, in, the, in the den, and he passed the test in God's grace. You can think even of a battle of wits between God and Job. At some point, even uh, near the end of Job, uh, Job says that he wants to have basically a battle of wits with the Lord. And it talks about like girding your loins as if they're both sumo wrestlers, right? And they're getting ready to hunker down. And he wants to have a battle of wits with the Lord. And in that passage, there's a barrage of questions that the Lord asks. 
70 questions in a row, none of which Job can answer. So the Lord pretty much won the battle of wits against Job, right? He says, where were you when I hung the Pleiades? Where were you when I put Orion there? Where were you when I created the Leviathan? Where were you when? Where were you when? We're 70 times. It's a battle of wits. It's an ordeal that settles a legal or judicial matter. You can think of Elijah with the prophets of Baal. That was a trial by fire. You can also think um, later in life of, uh, or in history of burning witches or Russian roulette in one way or another. So these things kind of still go on in one way or another. But think of this as a water ordeal, a judicial ordeal that's going to be settled. The legal case is going to be settled by a physical trial. Flash forward to the end of our sermon. Jesus also had an ordeal, didn't he? He said that I have a baptism to undergo. He had a trial by water or a water ordeal as well. He said at the very end of his life can, to the Father, take this cup from me. If there's any way to let this pass, let it pass. But if not, not my will, but thine be done. Jonah's trial is pointing forward to Christ's trial in one way or another. But let's look at this passage, the Lord's rescue. The passage starts off and says, the Lord appointed a great fish. But that underlines for us or underscores for us God's sovereignty that the Lord is the one who's in control of this whole situation. Just as the Lord had halted Jonah's flight to Tarshish, so the Lord provides a divine rescue, a divine intervention The Lord had appointed the wind, the Lord had appointed a storm, the Lord had appointed a fish, and Jonah will find out later uh, in chapters 3 and 4 that he appoints a plant, he appoints a worm, he appoints a scorching east wind. In other words, the Lord's in control of it all. The Lord's behind all of these things. The fish is not a punishment for Jonah, the fish is a life raft. The fish is a divine rescue, it is a way of escape. And it's really interesting to look at the passage. It has bookends, talking about the Lord uh, pointing the fish, and then we hear this prayer, and then at the end of it, the fish vomits Jonah out on dry land. It's highlighting God's work. God is the one who appointed the fish. The Lord is the one who appointed the fish. The Lord is really the main actor in Jonah. The Lord is really the main actor in this. So many times we have questions about how do you survive for three days in the belly of the fish? What is that like? Everybody wants to know what's going inside on inside of the fish. And Thomas Carlyle in his commentary on this passage said, we get so obsessed with what's going on inside of the fish that we miss the point of seeing what's going on inside of Jonah. The drama of the story isn't what's going on inside of the fish. The drama of the story is what's going on inside of Jonah. Sinclair Ferguson said something quite funny. He said, the real starring role is not the fish, but the Lord. The fish just has a swim-on part. The fish really has two verses. He just gets mentioned. It's the Lord who appointed the fish to swallow him. It's the Lord who appointed the fish to get rid of him. It's the Lord who's doing something with and through the fish. And most importantly, in Jonah. Don't miss the drama of the story of trying to figure out what it must be like or smell like or what you're going to eat or how you breathe. What's going on with Jonah inside of the fish? That's the real miracle. That's a real miracle to take someone rebellious 
and turn them, to turn them to himself. And throughout redemptive history, we constantly see God preparing in advance his people's salvation, don't we? We see Noah and the ark. God preserved his people through the ark. That was another water ordeal, wasn't it? Where God saved his people through the water and the waters of judgment crashed in on those who were his enemies. God provided bread and manna for his people in the wilderness. Elijah was fed by the ravens. The Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah and Philip happened to come by and be able to explain it to him. The main point I just want us to get here is that God ordains both the means and the ends of our salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. From beginning to end, from A to Z, it's all of the Lord. He's the one who's responsible. All glory and praise to him. There's nothing that we have to boast about in our salvation. We just sing songs of thanksgiving. Thank you, Father for your mercy, for your grace, for your forgiveness, for righteousness, for adoption, for sonship, for my inheritance, that I'm bound for glory, that I'm free. All of these things are from the Lord, just blessings upon blessings. God ordains both the means and the ends of salvation. Jesus doesn't just make salvation possible. Jesus saves, and he saves to the uttermost so that no one or nothing can snatch you out of the all-powerful hand of the Lord. And so we see here the Lord's rescue. And the main thrust, the rest of the sermon, we really want to focus on the prophet's prayer of gratitude. The section even is turning from prose to poetry. Most of uh, Jonah 1 read like you would read uh, a, a novel, right? It read like a story. And now all of a sudden, this is more like a poem. Even the style of it changes. And when we get to the psalm, the story almost comes to a complete standstill. It had been going at such a frenetic pace with all the action that had preceded it with the storm and the sailors and deciding what to do and casting lots and throwing them, throwing them overboard. And now everything just slows down. We often live our lives at such a ferocious pace, don't we? That sometimes we need to just slow down. I wish the Lord would just give us like one day in seven to rest from our normal activities and to be able to receive from him, don't you? You wish you just kind of work that into the structure of the universe maybe for us? This is one of the Bible's great prayers, isn't it? If we get to Jonah 4, we'll find one of the Bible's worst prayers. But this is one of the best. And note that Jonah hasn't prayed up to this point in the book. We have no record of that. Here's a prophet of the Lord, someone called by the Lord, and he hasn't yet called upon the Lord once. Jonah hadn't wanted to talk to God. He had wanted to be away from him, away from his presence. He had wanted to get away. He was going the exact opposite way. He was fleeing. And where would you think that this prayer was from if I just read the prayer and we didn't read it in the context of Jonah? Where would you have thought it was from? It sounds like one of the Psalms, doesn't it? It's not quoting any one Psalm in particular, but it's got the same language as Psalm 3, Psalm 5, Psalm 16, Psalm 18, Psalm 31, Psalm 42, Psalm 50, Psalm 65, Psalm 88, Psalm 120. He's been raised on the Psalms. 
Jonah grew up reading them. He grew up singing them. He grew up knowing them. He had recited them for almost his entire life. And then in a time of crisis, there it was. There was this language. The language of the faith. The prophet who had previously turned away from the voice of the Lord, now in crisis, is using the words of the Lord to call out to the Lord. It's remarkable what's going on inside of Jonah. Not so much inside the fish, but inside of Jonah. It's a sign of sonship. It's a sign of faith. It's a sign of trust to call out to the Lord. And now, in this time of crisis, and it's really describing his time in the water, not in the fish, right? He's praying it from the belly of the fish, thanking him for his rescue from the water. But in that time of crisis, he's describing what it was like, and he's crying out to the Lord, and he's using the language of the faith that he had learned as a boy, that he had learned growing up, that he had recited, that he had sung, that he had prayed. And note to whom Jonah prayed. He prayed to the Lord, Yahweh. The name that God had given to his people, his covenant name. His God. Recognizing he's not just the God or a God, but Jonah's crying out to Yahweh, his God, his Lord. He's recognizing what's going on. In verse 2, It says, I called out in the midst of my distress. The Lord answered me. From the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. It's really not annihilation and death that Jonah fears, but the prospect of being abandoned in Sheol and consequently separated from God. Sheol is really used to describe human fate. It refers to a place of divine punishment or hell, a curse that one often wished on the ungodly. And so he's not so much here afraid of his heart stopping to beat, but being away from the presence of the Lord, being away from the mercy of the Lord. That which in chapter 1 he couldn't wait to get away from, now when he recognizes what that is actually even like in part, he cries out to the Lord. What I really fear is that there's something far worse than physical death. I can't even imagine drowning. That's got to be one of the worst ways to go. And there he was, flailing around in the water, crying out to the Lord. But he wasn't so much concerned about, I just want another breath. But from the belly of Sheol, he's afraid of being separated from the Lord forever. He's afraid of being away from his mercy, being away from his grace, being away from his presence, being away from his promises, being away from his people. There's something far worse than dying, beloved. And it's dying apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So many times people are concerned with how they'll die. There are many horrible ways to die. But we really ought to be concerned about what happens after that even more so. To die apart from Christ is far worse. He's describing his time in the sea. Drowning is a horrible and miserable experience. And note that he said, I called out and you answered. Isn't that the way of the Lord? We call out and he answers. And they're called to worship. Come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We call, he answers. We call, he answers. He cares, he loves, he hears. And beloved, there is no place 
in heaven or on earth or under the earth or in the sea or in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the sea that you can escape the Lord. There's nothing that you've done that's so bad or so chronic or so ongoing that you can't call out to the Lord. Sometimes we feel it ourselves or we talk to friends who are just like so ashamed of what they've done or so grieved by doing the same thing over and over that they feel like they're just so far from the Lord or so far from any hope or so far from any care that they just feel like there's nothing that I can do. Jonah is showing us there's nowhere that you can go that God can't rescue you. There's no place that you can go. There's nothing that you done, have done that God can't save, that God can't heal, that God can't mend, that God can't care for, that God can't atone for in Jesus Christ. So come, he says. Verse 3, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surround me. All of your waves, all of your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet surely I will look again upon your holy temple. All those yous and yours, right, again, is highlighting the fact that God used the means of the sailors casting lots and the sailors throwing him overboard, but behind all of that is really the Lord. He's the one who cast him into the deep. It's his waves, it's his billows, it's his holy temple. He's the one who's sovereign, he's the one who's in control. God uses means to bring about his purposes of salvation. He used the lots, he used the men, he used the sea, he used the fish to bring Jonah to himself, to bring him to a time of repentance, to bring him to a time of renewal, to bring him to salvation. Sinclair Ferguson, in commenting on this passage, I'm going to read, it's a little bit longer paragraph, I'm going to read it twice. Sinclair Ferguson said this, Few principles are more important in the Christian life than the practical recognition of the sovereign God and his gracious determination to draw us near to himself, whatever the cost may be. When his purposes involve affliction and suffering of any kind, the knowledge that he is sovereignly overruling is the only thing that can preserve us from a craven fear or a sense of despair and bring us a measure of joyful and willing acceptance of our situation. Only when we recognize that God's aim is to make us like Jesus, and that he works all the events of our lives together for this purpose, will we begin to rejoice in the good that is produced out of tribulation. So I say that again, because Sinclair Ferguson is talking about sovereignty, and Jonah from the belly of the fish is recognizing that all of these things are in God's ultimate control. God's in control of the fish, the storm, the sea, Jonah, salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Hear it again. Few principles are more important in the Christian life than the practical recognition of the sovereign God and his gracious determination to draw us near to himself whatever the cost may be. When his purposes involve affliction and suffering of any kind, the knowledge that he is sovereignly overruling is the only thing that can preserve us from a craven fear or a sense of despair and bring us a measure of joyful and willing acceptance of our situation. Only when we recognize that God's aim is to make us like Jesus and that he works all the events of our lives together for his purpose will we begin to rejoice in the good that is produced out of tribulation. He wants us to be comforted in this. 
God is not going to let us go so far, those who are his, that he doesn't bring us back. Here, the Lord is not condemning Jonah, but he is rescuing Jonah. He is disciplining him. The Lord disciplines those whom he what, beloved? The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. This is the care of a father. You've been running from me, you've been fleeing from me, but no more. I love you, I care for you, you are mine, I'm saving you. He's bringing you back, and he does a fish to do it. Nothing will be able to separate him from the Lord. Nothing will be able to separate you from the Lord. He goes on in verses 5 and 6. The waters close over me to take my life. The deep surrounds me. Seaweed is wrapped around my head. At the root of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Dr. Stell says this is the psychological center of the poem. This is the bottom. The bars are closed. The gates of Sheol. It's like hell and death and separation from the presence of the Lord. When he sank into the deep, in essence, it's like the earth shut its bolts. Is this too far for the Lord to go to rescue someone? Is this too far? Is Jonah too far gone? Is he rebelled too much? Is he sinned too much? Is he displeased the Lord too much? His next line is, yet you. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Down, 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 down into the pit. Gates closed, bars locked. So it seems and so it feels. Yet you brought me up from the pit, O Lord, my God. That's a prayer of praise and gratitude for a salvation, recognizing the depths of of his depravity and where he was, the depths of his waywardness, the depths of his rebellion, the depths of his sin. And this is an extremely difficult situation to be in, right? Sometimes the very best thing that can happen to us is the very thing that we most dread for the simple reason that it strips away all of our self-reliance, all of our, it humbles us, it removes our pride, it removes us from every other hope of salvation other than God, said one theologian. Sometimes God uses a severe mercy in our life to strip us from things that we are using in addition to or besides him to show us him alone, to give us that salvation so that we are reminded again that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the word of God alone, because we're such idle factories. We just constantly want to hold on to other things. And here Jonah is stripped of everything. And yet he recognizes, yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Clearly Jonah had done nothing to deserve to be rescued, right? You'd be embarrassed if you met Jonah on the shores of Nineveh and he said, you know what, me and God did this together. No, you didn't. You were drowning in the sea and the Lord sent a fish. You were crying out and you were rescued. There's nothing for him to brag about. What did Jonah contribute to the situation was sin and rebellion. What did the Lord contribute to the salvation? Grace and mercy 
and salvation and a rescue. Everything that Jonah needed. In verse 7, he says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He's on the brink of passing out as he's thinking about this. He's losing oxygen, and Jonah's thoughts turn to the Lord, to the Lord his God. It's very specific, right? It's not an unknown God. It's not an unknowable God. It's not the God of the sea. It's not a cosmic force. It's not a blind leap of fate. It's not fortune. It's not chance. It's not a calculated risk. It's the Lord. It's Yahweh, his temple. He had been there. He knew the sacrifices. He knew what was provided for him. He knew that there was an Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant sat a mercy seat. Jonah had been in the presence of the Lord. Jonah had heard the promises of the Lord. Jonah had heard the words of the Lord. Jonah had seen the works of the Lord. And now he's rehearsing and rehearing these stories. Can the God of Jonah, can the God of the sea, can the God of the sea creature Can the God of Noah and the great flood, can the God of the exodus, can the God of creation, can the God of the resurrection help you? Yes. Absolutely. He's here for you. He's present for you. He calls you this morning. Come. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In verse 9, he says, But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will repay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Kids, you might remember that we break apart our catechism in terms of guilt, grace, and gratitude, right? We recognize that Jonah was guilty. We recognize God's grace in rescuing him. And what's Jonah's response? But I, with the voice of thanksgiving... I, with the voice of gratitude, will sacrifice to you. It's a, it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's a sacrifice of praise for what the Lord has done. What has the Lord done? He's provided salvation. Both the plan of salvation and the accomplishment of salvation both belong to the Lord. Some people sadly read this text and they think that God is giving Jonah a second chance. And he's kind of like, all right, you get to try again. I submit to you, it's so much more than that, and Scripture seems to say more than that, and Jonah seems to say more than that. Salvation belongs to the Lord. From beginning to end, from A to Z, all of it, all that we have needed, he has provided. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? Everything that we need is provided. It's an amazing grace. It's an amazing mercy. This is not a second chance. This is not a new opportunity for Jonah to do the right thing. This is a rescue, a divine rescue, an image of salvation. And note that there's no equivocation here about many different ways or access to God or manifold ways of salvation. There is one God and one Lord and one Savior, Jesus Christ. John Calvin, in commenting on this passage, said, No aid and no help can be expected from any other quarter other than from the one true God. Jonah's done nothing to earn or deserve or merit or cooperate with this. It's a gift bestowed by the God of the universe, the Holy Trinity, upon Jonah. And then the Lord spoke to the fish and he vomited him on dry land. (laughs) 
Something had happened to Jonah. This is one of the great reversals of Scripture. It reminds us of that passage in Ephesians where it says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were under condemnation like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's that great reversal. Showing quite clearly that God is the author of salvation. And so if we return to the water ordeal for a moment, we want to recognize that all of this in some way is pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Jesus even said that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. It's pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus had a juridical ordeal to go through. He said, I have a baptism to undergo. He asked the disciples, do any of you think you can endure my baptism, my water ordeal? He's going to endure the wrath of God. He's going to endure hell. He says he has a cup to drink. He has an ordeal. He has a trial that he needs to go through. He has to fight against sin. He has to fight against Satan. He has to fight against death. He has to fight against the serpent. He has a message to bring. He has a mission to accomplish. And he recognized the difficulty of it. He cried out. He prayed out, Father, if there's any way possible to remove this cup from me, do it. Yet not my will, but thine be done. Those, that wasn't the prayer of Adam. Adam said, my will, not thine be done. That wasn't the prayer of Israel. Israel said, my will, not thine be done. Jonah said, my will, not thine be done. But Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. And so he goes. And where Jonah was rescued from his ordeal, Jesus, hanging on a cross, the only time he didn't address his father as his father was on the cross, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me for us to pay the penalty for our sin, to pay the penalty for our rebellion, to pay the penalty for our fleeing from the Lord, from discounting his word, from disregarding his word, from not loving him, not loving our neighbors, not loving our enemies, not being who we're even created to be as humans, not following and obeying his law. Jesus endured it all on the cross And then he was three days in the tomb. Satan, that crafty serpent, thought, finally I got him. I've been waiting for this kid to be born for thousands of years. Finally he's born. I've got him. He's dead. But three days later, lifted up. Out of the grave, he arose, right? He is risen, beloved. He is risen, beloved. He conquered sin, he conquered Satan, he conquered death. He won the trial by ordeal. And as he goes, so goes everybody that he represents. We have life, we have forgiveness, we have righteousness, we have adoption, we have love, we have a future. We're being conformed more and more to the image of God. Beloved, this prayer, this passage 
tells us that even in the deepest anguish of our experiences, we can cry out to the Lord, and he hears and he answers. There's nowhere that you can go. There's nothing that you've done that is too far from the saving grip of Jesus Christ. No place you can go down, 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 down that he can't go, and already underneath you, lifting you up to bring you up higher. It's amazing to us. This is pointing forward to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who conquered for us, who endured the penalty for us, who had the bars of hell sealed against him, but he busted through them. And now he says, as the church goes out and proclaims this gospel, that the gates of hell will not prevail because he lives, because he reigns, because he conquered, because he rules. And everyone who trusts in Christ alone for their salvation is free. You have the forgiveness of sins. You are no longer under any condemnation. You are declared righteous, and there's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God. And that's meant to comfort us. And in a moment now, we're going to come and partake and share of the body and blood of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're running or you're fleeing, let today be the day of salvation. He's calling you. He's saying, come, and the Lord will forgive your sins. The Lord will make you clean. The Lord will justify you. The Lord will be with you forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the greatness of the gift of salvation and that there's nothing we do to contribute to it or merit or earn it, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we have been saved. And we are in a state of salvation that we can never lose. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for an imputed righteousness. We thank you for that we are adopted. We thank you that we are indwelt by your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that we would live and love and serve in light of that newness of life. We above all people should be humble, recognizing your great mercy and your rescue operation. We pray that your word would be effective in us, conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus as you sanctify us. It's in his name, Washington.